everyone welcome to the Forbes India cover story podcast series in association with theindicast.com my name is abhishek and uh, this special billionaire package profiles business tycoons from around the world and on the cover is a founder of caravel group harinder pal hari banga a shipping and commodities magnet joining me on the call to talk about his cover is uh, samar shrivastava hi samar hope you are well yes i am and hope you are well too yes thank you samar thank you so let's go back to the days when uh, hari banga and his partner richard elman created the world's uh, or rather asia's largest commodities trading firm how did he get there if you could please paint a brief picture sure harinder pal singh banga is a first generation entrepreneur he grew up in a normal middle class family in india in chandigarh in the northern part of india <laughs> and when he was 16 he came to bombay and trained at this uh, merchant navy training ship called dufrin it's a very famous ship that's uh, in central bombay and a lot of graduates over the years have gone on to premier jobs in the shipping industry uh, so he trained at dufrin when he was 16 he started off two years or three years later he graduated and he joined uh, the shipping corporation of india which is a government run shipping company he didn't stay there too long and he made his way to europe and became a captain at the age of 27 after that he spent some time on the business side first in london mm-hmm. and he then moved on to hong kong where all the action was and in 1986 he joined richard elman and they founded uh, the noble group and he was one of the two key people in the noble group so that was also the time when china was opening up to the world and they had this voracious appetite for commodities and nobel group was connecting buyers in china to sellers essentially the miners and transporting iron ore coal etc and that's where the nobel group made his name uh, harry bangla sort of played a key role in that and he was there all the way till 2010 when he decided uh, to move on and then you write that uh, his second act uh, he set sail with caravel Uh, his new outfit uh, with his family how is that different what are the different uh, businesses that it does what is the revenue model of sorts i read about fleet management and haulage so in 2010 when uh, he decided to move on from the mobile group he wasn't sure of what he wanted to do next except that he had 11 and a half or 12% stake in the mobile group which was worth give or take around 800 850 900 million dollars i think when he sold off it was worth around 900 million dollars if you include the dividends he received over the years etc so he was sitting on a fair amount of cash and i think it was in 2012 that uh, he decided to buy this company called fleet fleet management which was based out of mumbai so essentially what fleet management does is that a company buys a ship and they are the owner of the ship and fleet management essentially provides the crews the crew to manage that ship think of it as a hotel management company where somebody owns the hotel property but somebody else is managing it on their behalf for a fixed fee and so that's what fleet management does and it's a fairly profitable business more importantly it's a predictable business so you know that if you're managing so many ships you have a fair amount of visibility on what your earnings are going to be and hari banga had set up this business while he was at the mobile group and when he was leaving he says that the board didn't really understand this business mm-hmm. and so they asked him if he was interested in buying it from them and hari had the money and he got a couple of independent valuation reports done 
and ended up buying the business for I think $75 million. Can you explain some of the risks in uh, the business that Mr. Banga is in? You know, in 2008, uh, before the financial crisis uh, had hit, uh, you write that the charter rate for a dry bulk carrier, which is designed to transport stuff like, you know, grains, coal, steel, etc. It was $300,000 a day. But then by the end of 2008, it had fallen to $3,000. A bulk of uh, American listed carriers had lost uh, more than $10 billion in a decade. So what kind of risks is this company up to and how do they manage to get around this? This for me was the, was the most fascinating part of the story because I've seen many entrepreneurs who work or operate in cyclical industries. Mm. They essentially get cleaned out in the down cycle. And you would think that a person who is day in and day out in an industry that is cyclical, that goes through an up cycle and goes through a down cycle, they would probably be able to manage the risk better and they would probably be able to understand when the market is peaking, etc., etc. But it's amazing how many entrepreneurs are not able to do that. So Harry Banga, at least for now, is one of those entrepreneurs who has been able to do that. And we spent a fair amount of time talking about how you identify a peak in a market or how do you come to know when the market is peaking. And he was very clear. He said that, look, you are never able to identify the absolute top of a market, but you know when mm -hmm. things are getting too frothy, when markets are getting too optimistic, you know that it's time to sort of cut your bets or reduce your bets and gradually start getting out. And this was the disagreement he had at the Nobel Group also. You know, during the commodities boom that went on between, say, 2000 and 2008, the Nobel Group wanted to get into things like owning mines, owning mm -hmm. ships, owning, I think, sugar sugar mills etc etc at the top of the boom and harry argued that you know we've probably missed that and asset prices are just too high and he disagreed and which is why he ended up leaving right. and you know history has shown that if an entrepreneur increases leverage at the top of a cycle hmm. he usually is not able to survive the bottom that follows on the other hand, if you sort of reduce your leverage at the top of a cycle, or if you start reducing your bets at the top of a cycle, you're able to survive the down cycle a lot better and you probably have a cleaner balance sheet uh, where banks end up giving you money to survive the down cycle. Right, you talked about balance sheet and uh, he's uh, managed to keep zero debt uh, on it. Uh, how he pulled that off in an industry which is uh, fairly capital intensive. Right. So he had a lot of money, about 900 million. He's really not spent all of it. We didn't, since he's a private company, we couldn't discuss exactly how much he has left, etc., etc. They won't disclose that. But he spent 75 million for fleet management. I'm sure he's got a lot of money in commodities trading, etc., etc. And he's got a family office that essentially does asset management, where they made some investments in Nike. They partnered with KKR to get into Max Healthcare and they made some other investments in Hong Kong. He's still got a fair amount of money, I would imagine. He's maintained a zero debt, debt status. But having said that, uh, he was very clear that if the right opportunity comes along, he's not averse to taking some amount of debt right now. Right. And, and before the COVID-19 pandemic struck, uh, you write that the business has been quite good since 2013, where uh, tonnage haulage, as you write, has risen from uh, 15.6 million to 28. Uh, 6 million tons. And that's fairly quick growth, despite the fact that we have the talks of trade tensions between China and a few other countries. Right. And so that's the point that people need to remember. A, he's got relationships with steel mills, etc. in China. So he's right. used those relationships to grow his business. 
and even though we have all these trade tensions, hmm. uh, trade still continues right now. You know, companies will still take time to move. Uh, to move supply chains out of China, if at all, and we're still not clear whether it's viable to do that. So, in the interim, you know, business is fine. And look, he's a supplier of commodities. So, if, for instance, tomorrow somebody were to shift from China to India or Vietnam, he would just start supplying them in India or Vietnam. Right. So, I don't think the business is really at risk on account of the trade tensions. It would just sort of move the scope of his operations outside of China. And, and has the current pandemic affected? This business, um, it, it would have to an extent. And, and you write that he has some 35 ships that do business with Chinese ports. Thankfully, none of the crew members have been infected yet at the time of writing. But how has uh, it, it impacted his business and his employees? So it certainly slowed things down. And he had 35 ships either docked at Chinese ports or waiting to dock. And, you know, he spoke about how uh, crew members are not able to fly back to their home countries. So that's what happens once your service period ends. You then fly back to your home country. So that hasn't been able to happen. Uh, he's had to sort of spend time making sure that food and water get on board these ships because crew members are not allowed to leave ships and so on and so forth. So it slowed things down. How long the slowdown lasts depends on how long uh, the pandemic lasts. And, and when you were uh, doing the story, uh, Summer, did you get any inkling about when is it that Mr. Banga will be ready to hand over his reins to the next generation? Is he still in the thick of it? He was already 60 plus when he started his uh, second stint, if I'm not mistaken. He was 63 actually when he started the Caravan Group. He's handed over a lot uh, to his younger son, Angad who's mm-hmm. with him in the business uh, and Angad manages uh, a lot of the day-to-day activities. But uh, I didn't really get the sense that he's mm-hmm. willing to, or he wants to slow down or he wants to hand things over full-time. I mean, he still spends 10 hours in the office every day. He's still, and, and since Hong Kong is a hub, in the sense that if somebody were to go from India to China, they probably transit through Hong Kong. If somebody were to go from India to Southeast Asia, they could transit through Hong Kong. So he has a lot of dinner meetings every evening and he was saying that it does get too much at times, etc. So, um, I mean, he gave me no indication that he's, he wants to slow down. And, and how does the foreseeable uh, future lo- look like? Last couple of questions, Samar. What, what is it? Uh, there, there are tons of things happening around uh, with uh, the economy in the doldrums, uh, situation up in the northern part of India. doesn't look too good with its neighbor. You've got the COVID-19 situation uh, going on. Unemployment rates uh, across the world are not doing too good. Obviously, the trade between countries uh, would be paused until people, consumers, start uh, wanting to you know, spend more money. So given all these factors, which none of the companies have any hold over, how does it look for the Caravel Group in the the next few months, if not years? Nobody knows, except that they're sitting on a fair amount of money. There would definitely be uh, opportunities post the pandemic. So you would have businesses that, you know, are not structurally damaged on account of the pandemic that would need some amount of capital to get back on track. And so that's one space that uh, they could definitely be looking at. I mean, I, I think most smart entrepreneurs right now are just waiting it out. And I think they're doing the same. On that note, Summer, uh, thank you very much for your time on, on this podcast. And congratulations on the cover again. Thank you. You're most welcome. Thank you. And uh, all you listeners, uh, as usual, you know the drill. You can get this podcast on ForbesIndia.com uh, as well as on iTunes. And uh, you can also find us on Spotify and Stitcher.